Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Ladies and gentlemen, comrades and compañeros, friends, welcome to another edition of the Fifth Column Podcast. I say that in the cadence of Camille Foster, who is not here. Neither is Matt Welch, not here either. I can hear the clicking. You're turning it off, aren't you? (laughs) I can tell. Anthony Fisher, also not here. It is me and me alone. Guys, ladies, everybody, it's the summer. So what happens in the summer is people travel, and it's very hard to get all of us in a room in midtown Manhattan. Uh, you know, in the winter, it's difficult. So it's a little little hard now. So we apologize for the lack of a dispatch. So I took this upon myself to provide a dispatch. Uh, it's one of those special dispatches that we do. And it might seem, from the description that you're probably reading right now, that it would require a certain level of knowledge, something in, or an interest in Northern Ireland, the story of Northern Ireland, the Troubles. It, it doesn't. Um, the, we get into the weeds here, uh, but my guest in this special edition is the brilliant Patrick Radden Keefe. You might know that byline from The New Yorker. But he also has a new book out, which has been a bestseller, by the way. Bestseller. Who would have thought that a book about the Troubles in Northern Ireland would be a bestseller. It's called Say Nothing, A True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland. The reason I think it became a bestseller is that it is essentially a murder mystery, and it revolves around the murder of a woman named Jean McConville, who in 1972, I believe, she was taken from her her house in Divis Flats, which is a council estate in Belfast, and disappeared um, by a rather large gang um, from the provisional IRA. The thing about Jean McConville and what makes the story so interesting is that she was recently widowed, a frail and fragile woman who had 10 children. Nothing surprising about that in Ireland. She was a Protestant. Her husband recently departed was a Catholic. It was a mixed marriage. And a IRA team came and she disappeared. So Patrick Radden Keefe follows this story in The Disappearance and uncovers some details and breaks some news. And it's been a bit controversial, but he names the killers. Um, and one of whom had previously been named, one of whom hadn't. And it is a fascinating, fascinating story. And that's the thing. Before we get into this, I'm going to leave you with one story. That's the thing about Northern Ireland that is fascinating is the personal stories. There is a book that I recommend you get, but you can't really get it because it's very, very, very expensive because it's out of print, (laughs) called Lost Lives. It sounds weird, right? Lost Lives. Thousands of pages of a chronicle of the people who died during the Troubles, 3,000 odd. Every single death, it is, is accounted for in as much detail as the authors can manage. So... I'm going to tell you about one quickly, and then we're going to go into this special episode. And as I said, be patient with this because it's a good one, but it's, it, we're going to get nerdy and it's going to get interesting. There's some great stories in here and great stories that Patrick Radden Keefe doesn't tell in the book, too. But I opened up the Lost Lives book the other day, and I you know, flipped to a random page. And this will give you a sense of what it was like in Northern Ireland in 1974. This is 
you know, right now, almost 45 years ago, this is, we're about a week from this being the 35th anniversary of the death of a woman named Anne Ogilvy in South Belfast. She was a civilian, a Protestant, uh, 31, and she had a child. And in Lost Lives, it tells this story that Anne Ogilvy was drawn into a UDA, a, a Ulster Defense Association club, which is a loyalist uh, militia gang armed group, um, with her six-year-old daughter. And her six-year-old daughter was held by this gang as Anne Ogilvy was beaten to death. Um, and it's a, an incredible story that is, Anne Ogilvy means nothing to anybody. But back then, this was so common that this story could pass almost unnoticed. The people who were jailed in relation to this was one man and 11 women. She was beaten to death. They don't really know why, but she was tied to a chair, blindfolded, and battered in the face with a brick while her daughter stood outside the door, banging on it, crying, saying, my mammy is in there. This is what happened uh, during the Troubles. This is an internecine battle here, internecine murder. And Ogilvy was Protestant, and her killers were Protestants. And you're about to hear the story of Jean McConville, who was in a mixed marriage, living in a Catholic area, um, herself a Protestant, but killed by a gang of Catholics. There was no winners. There were no good guys um, during the struggles when there were the, the troubles when we're talking about paramilitary groups. So take a listen to this. Um, I hope you like it. This is our, our, our patchwork. Give you something because we didn't have anything this week. And it's Patrick Radden-Keefe from The New Yorker talking about his book, Say Nothing. Uh, Patrick Radden-Keefe, thanks for uh, joining us on The Fifth Column. Or joining me. It's a solo episode uh, today. and um, I don't know what I'm missing. Yeah, well, <laughs> trust me, if you heard it, you wouldn't be here. And you guys, you guys also <laughs> normally do it at night, right? We do it at night, and usually with um, about you know two or three gallons of whiskey in us. Oh, it kind I, of, I, did so this, I did this all wrong. Yeah, you did. This is the kind of sober, <laughs> calm version. Because, um, as I was just telling you, this is a, a topic that interests me tremendously. And the book is uh, Say Nothing. Uh, is there a subtitle in the book? I don't have it in front uh, of me. True Story of Murder and Memory in That's Northern right. Ireland. Okay, and that is, this is a, essentially about the, the Gene McConville murder. We're going to get to the specifics of that in a second. But first, let's get a tiny bit into your background, c because you're from the dot. I am. You're from Dorchester, from aren't Dorchester, you? Dorchester, yeah. So how is a guy, you said once that, that um, in some interview that your British publisher had said that you have address your name because yeah. Patrick Radden Keefe is not a, a sort of Uyghur name. I mean, that's, that's slightly Irish. They, they left, they left nothing to the imagination. <laughs> yes, yeah. It's kind of, if they, if they sent me that script, I'd say two on the nose, yeah, send it back. Yeah. But, and you're from Dorchester. So right. Irish in how far back? Well, so this is the thing. I mean, on, on my father's side, um, you got to go back to the turn of the last century. Yeah. Um, and so I have this uh, almost obnoxiously Irish name, um, but my connections, my direct connections to Ireland, uh, didn't run all that deep. So, I mean, that means in a book about the troubles, you're not thumbing the scale in one direction or another. No, I mean, and in fact, I, I, so my British publisher did say that and it was interesting because it's actually, to my mind, it's sort of a, di a difference between the British and the American approach to this sort of thing. Never yeah. came up in the American context, yeah. but, but in England, the feeling was you got to address the name. You have to say something, sort of declare your, your, um, your bona fides or, or, uh, 
or otherwise. And for me, the point was just to say, I have no dog in this fight, really. I, I did grow up in a, a Irish-American corner of Boston. But if you walked down the street from – walked down the street, took the T to um, the Broadway stop in South Boston, yeah. you would see a mural on the entry of Broadway that goes – sort of yeah. main thoroughfare in South Boston, which I do not think is there anymore, actually, which was a, – a, 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 you know, basically a mural you'd see on the Falls Road. It was a pro IRA Republican mural, 32 counties, et cetera. And there was, and look, there was a lot of that. Um, I mean, there's a story I tell uh, at the end of the, at the end of the book about how the bar, the Irish pub down the street from my house, uh, when I was a kid, too young to go there myself, my dad would go and they would, they would, Pass the hat. They would pass a jar for the for, lad, for the lads. Yeah, yeah, the Norwich um, And I, it's funny. The the there are some people who suggest that this is like an urban legend, but I I can I can tell you like I fact check this. I actually yeah. I tracked down the owner of the bar and like this happened. Yeah. Um, and so there was there was very much a kind of ambient sense of um, support for the IRA, support for the Republican cause uh, around me when I was growing up, but it never felt particularly like my cause. Yeah, I, I imagine – so basically this book deals with people on both sides of the divide, but mostly Republicans yeah, because it's absolutely. talking about a Republican uh, murder of uh, a woman, Jean McConville. Um, but if you were talking to, to unionists or you're talking to people that were sort of opposed to Republicanism, was your name and your background and your Americanness a problem? Because when I was in Northern Ireland, the presumption of Moynihan, Boston, last name, is that I was going to be some stupid romantic fanion, as, as so many of us are. That's so interesting. Yeah, I, I got a little bit of that, but not too much. I mean, I got – there were um, – you know, the book is chiefly about the IRA, um, but I, a number of my sources for the book were former RUC uh, uh, Royal Ulster Constabulary cops, and um, there was which was about eight percent Catholic. By the t- I think maybe six percent when Gene McConville was killed. Was it even that? Yeah, I mean the highest it got was in nineteen twenty one or twenty two after its foundation. It was twenty two percent or twenty one percent. Wow! Because it was mandated at the beginning. The RUC, by the way, for for those of you. Uh, who don't know, is the police force of Northern yeah. Ireland has now since been changed. Re- rechristened. Rechristened the, uh, the PSNI. Yeah. The, um, police <laughs> service of Northern yeah. Ireland. Yeah. They're more neutral. Yeah. Um, but I think the mandate was uh, a third Catholic uh-huh. by, by, by law. Um, but so you're talking, you're talking to, to, to people, uh, there was a little bit of, there was a little bit of skepticism. I mean, look, what I found, the, the whole insider outsider thing is interesting. So part of it for me was, um, I came to this in my day job. I read for the New Yorker. This was a piece. It was just, you know, I went to, Ecuador and wrote a piece. I went to Guinea and West Africa and wrote a piece. This was like that. I was going to a foreign country to write a, hopefully a in-depth story about something that happened there. Um, there is some baggage. I'm from Boston. My name is Patrick Keefe. But what I found mostly on the ground, um, I mean, I wonder what you think. Like I, my experience, particularly growing up Irish American in Boston is that there's a tendency among Irish Americans to feel this like almost umbilical sense of connection with the old country, even if you've never been there. And I remember going to Ireland. um, Particularly when you haven't been there. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's right. right. When you you actually get there. No, but this is kind of my point is that I I, I remember going uh, in high school to, to Ireland and talking to people um, in Dublin 
and them essentially saying, and me saying like, you know, St. Patty's Day must be great. And they're yeah. like, are you kidding? Yeah. It's awful. Yeah. You know, all these awful <laughs> Americans come over and vomit on our streets, yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, well, and, they give it to us for one day because it's usually them vomiting exactly, on their it own comes, streets. Exactly. It comes the other, way, the other <laughs> way around, right? The, uh, so uh, what I, what I found was that when I got over there, most of the time, as soon as people heard me speak, um, there wasn't a sense that I was – they couldn't really, like, situate me on the grid anymore. Yeah. Um, and they were willing to kind of treat me as an outsider. I w- but I wonder what it was like for you. So when were you there? Because I saw – early on in my research, I watched that Vice oh, doc yeah. that you did yeah. in Derry. That was the first thing I ever shot for Vice. Um, yeah, that was – it was actually in Belfast. It was for the the. Was parades. it not in Derry? No, it was in oh, – okay. it was in uh, Belfast. So it was in it, July. Well, it was two things because I, as a – Irish American in, in Massachusetts. Where are you from in Massachusetts? I'm from Concord. Okay, yeah. Um, but my my father's father's from Lincoln. Uh, uh-huh. Just that whole little area there. And um, when I was probably 18 or 19 in Cape Cod, you might remember we had immigrant labor in the summer, and they were Irish people. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember this woman who I was friends with, and you could tell that she was from the north because she um, used to ask me if I wanted to go see a film. Yeah, it was a yeah, film. film. It was a film. It's a filament. It's a light bulb. <laughs> and so I, she, I bought at one point a Jerry Adams book. I was like uh, Ireland, United Ireland towards a lasting peace or something. Uh-huh. One of these kind of silly books that he just turns out. And she saw it and was mortified. Really? And that's when I realized, oh God, I think that I've done something horribly wrong. Doesn't everybody like the things or the, everyone's on the same yeah, side? Yeah. Right? And so I started reading, and I had Tim Pat Coogan's book on the IRA, and Tim, uh-huh. Tim Pat Coogan is a very sort of pro-Republican uh, yeah. uh, historian. And then I started reading the other stuff. And then by the time I went to shoot that story in Ireland, I had two things. In, in Northern Ireland, I had two things. I, when I was with, on the Falls Road with the INLA guys, yeah, not IRA guys, yeah. some IRA guys. And INLA, by the way, was a kind of more Marxist offshoot right. than the provisionals which was a Marxist offshoot of the officials. Yeah, right? yeah. This gets very Byzantine. <laughs> so there I was Michael Moynihan from Boston. It was by implication. I said right. nothing. Right. And when I hung out with the uh, UDA guys, um, I always pointed out how much I didn't like Jerry Adams, like, unlike all those other people from Boston. Uh-huh. And then it was okay. Yeah. And, and, I, and that was, I was honest on both ends. Yeah. But it was just a sort of lack of information that I was right. providing. Right. God, it's so interesting. Yeah. So, um, so you go, you do this piece, and as you point out, you're in Ecuador, you do a lot of pieces. What was it about this one? You said, I need to actually expand this into a book. It was the, um, well, it was a couple of things. I mean, part of it was the, people um the it's a it, you know it's strange to say characters because they're real people but the um uh there was something about this handful of people who came come up in the in the piece i mean it's a long piece um but somebody like brendan hughes is in the piece only briefly um and there was uh there were a handful of others and i just felt as though there was a kind of depth and a pathos to their experience that I wanted to delve into. It just got under my skin. So tell, and, tell us about the, the actual event that yeah. this book uh, is, is about and surrounds and, and sort, of, sure. sort of the murder mystery of it. Yeah. So, so, I mean, the way the whole thing started was in 2013, I read an obituary in the New York Times for this woman, Dolores Price. And she had been the first woman to be admitted to the IRA um, in a kind of, you know, operational frontline soldier capacity uh, in the early 1970s. And she lived this incredibly colorful life. She led a bombing mission. She was sent to prison for life in Brixton. She um, 
uh, went on hunger strike. She ended up getting out of prison. She kind of went toe to toe with Margaret Thatcher, and she yeah, was she bombed the old Bailey. She in bombed the old Bailey as bring, when she was the war really to, young to, to, to the mainland, and yeah. the first time that they did so in that yeah. in the phase of the, in the modern troubles. And um, in this obituary, it mentioned two things that really caught my imagination. One was that. Before she died, she'd taken part in this secret oral history project at Boston College in which she shared reminiscences about the things she'd done on the understanding that it wouldn't be released until after her death. And that there were a whole bunch of people who had in this manner, ex-paramilitaries from both sides, who had talked about the terrible things they'd done during the Troubles um, with this deal that BC would kind of seal up the archive and not release anything until after they were dead. And then the other is that it mentioned that Dolores Price had played some role in this really notorious event, um, which even as an Irish-American who reads the paper, I had known nothing about, um, but is a, is a really iconic event in the history of the Troubles, which is in 1972, there was a woman named Jean McConville who was a West Belfast uh, widow. Her husband had recently died. She had 10 kids. And one night, a gang of people came into her apartment, dragged her out of the apartment as the kids were clinging to her legs, said, we'll bring your mother back in a few hours. We just want to talk to her. And they never brought her back. She disappeared. The kids grew up orphaned, had, didn't know what happened to their mother. And the kids were split up, too, by the state. They were split up by the state, sent off to orphanages. Um, and it eventually emerged that the IRA had uh, take, abducted this woman, killed her, and then chosen not to do what the IRA normally would have done, which is left her body on the street but to bury her, buried her in a secret grave. And, and, and what was the, I know that there's a number of IRA uh, veterans who say that she should have been left on the street. And the point, of course, was to, to send a warning to people because Jean McConville was accused of being a tout, being a, an informant. informant. Why did they disappear her? So we don't know um, exactly. It's interesting. One of the strange things about Northern Ireland, as, as you will have discovered yourself right is it's so small yes, so <laughs> so um i mean one of the advantages for me in terms of the piece in the book is that all these people knew each other and interacted and you can in terms of telling the story you can kind of track their they're all like ping-ponging off of each other yeah. um uh, and, and just to interject something i i noticed this is that you know people say how do you get these people to talk i mean they have these crimes under their belt and they're trying to been hiding it for years and i get the sense talking to these people that it's almost like a documentary about cbgbs in the 70s yeah, they miss it totally. and they want yeah. to talk about it yeah. and you know of course they avoid certain things but there's this kind of romantic oh, yeah. they talk about americans being romantic about yeah. the troubles people who are veterans of it seem to be quite romantic too but i think and that's a big part of what i was trying to capture in the book was yeah. this idea of looking at, at political radicalism, um, looking at a group of people in the early part of a conflict in which they, you know, I think leaving aside the question of means, I think there was some real righteousness to their cause. They were fighting mm -hmm. a, a real oppression that actually mm -hmm. existed. And they had a period in which there's no daylight between them and they have real moral clarity about what they're doing. And then what I wanted to do is what if you look at those people over the decades mm -hmm. when you see political change, you see the conflict end, they look back. Like in a way, they don't have the good fortune to be martyred young, so they're stuck with PTSD, kind of looking back at these things they did earlier in their lives, including people um, who participated in the murder of Jean McConville. Absolutely, and that and so the idea for the book, for the piece, and then the book um, was: what if you took this single murder, um, and you look at the people all around it, the perpetrators and the victims, and sort of trace uh, the way in which that it's kind of the maypole around which the whole story um, revolves, and um, 
you do have this uh, this peculiar thing where because it's such a small place, to your question about why disappear her, um, you know, in Mexico today or in Chile or Argentina in the past or in Cambodia, when you talk about disappearances, you're talking about thousands of people, tens of thousands in some cases. In Northern Ireland... It's like 16. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's just, yeah. uh, you know, Small it's, it's fewer than 20 people. And we know their names, and some of the bodies have since been found. But the smallness of the place um, means that it, there was this kind of short period of time when the IRA was doing this. Yeah. And the interesting thing about it, it was it, is that it was a policy. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a thing where somebody got excessive or somebody decided to bury somebody and forgot where the grave was. Um, it was a policy. They decided, let's disappear this person. I, this, the understanding that we have from the few people who've talked about Jean McConville is that probably it had to do with the fact that she was a woman and a mother of 10 and a widow. You mean in the sense that that's why we remember this one? I mean, Well, no, that, that, that the decision to disappear oh, her, the reason yes. you wouldn't leave her out on the street is that the, the optics for the IRA, even if you believe that she was an informant, yes. it looks pretty bad to orphan 10 kids. And, and I know that this is something you grapple with in the book, um, which is a fantastic book, by the way, if I haven't said that already. Um, but was she an informant? Yeah. It's a hard question, right? It's a hard question. And I don't, um, I don't come down definitively one way or the other. And that the, my refusal to do that has left some readers uh, and some critics. I've some seen critics, on, absolutely online, so, yeah. uncomfortable. Where some yeah. people believe very fervently that she was. Her children maintain that she wasn't. They maintain something quite different, right? Tell tell us the story about why the children think that their mother was uh, murdered. Well, there's it is a complicated story. So this is a this is a. Um, Jean McConville was a Protestant, and she married a Catholic man. And they lived initially in East Belfast, which was in a predominantly Protestant area. And they were a mixed marriage, which was unusual in those days, but not unheard of. And um, the kids were raised Catholic. And at a certain point at, at the outbreak of the Troubles, the family is kind of hounded out of East Belfast. They're, they're effectively too Catholic for East Belfast. So they relocate to West Belfast, which is very Catholic, in a very Republican part of uh, West Belfast. And... Um, the husband dies. And so one suggestion is that, you know, Jean is, is, a, is a sort of a stranger in a strange land. She's a Protestant um, in this very Catholic Republican area. There's a story that the children tell that they remember one night being in this housing project where they live, Divis Flats, and hearing cries outside the door. And the, the, the mother went to the door, Jean went to the door and found a wounded British soldier, a soldier who'd been shot. And she tended to him, and kind of cared for him, gave him a pillow and then came back into the flat, and that the next morning the soldier was gone, and somebody had scrawled Brit Lover across the door. Um, and his context there in the Divis Flats, which yeah. is now flattened, by the way. Now I think gone, it's really yeah, gone. except for the tower. Yeah. So the tower is still there, and this is basically a housing project, yeah. and it's really kind of cramped living quarters. There's a lot of people in that, yeah. in that very small geographic area. It's a, it's a crazy, scary, um, yeah. scary place, and very densely um, IRA territory at that time. So, um, you know, not a good place to be helping a British soldier, it's true. Would that have risen to the level where the IRA would take her away, kill her, and disappear her? I don't know. I was able to find one other instance at around the same period in which there was another Catholic woman living or a Catholic woman living in Divis Flats who also cared for a British soldier. And she similarly encountered – she got some blowback from people um, 
but they didn't take her away and kill her. You know that that her she she lived beyond that. And the claim is also that there's no record um, from the British Army, and these are obviously incomplete, and there's a lot of problems. Well, there's yeah. I mean, the file the files are incomplete. The the British have a when you start digging into it, a a pretty heinous record of destroying files, sealing files, you know, indefinitely. So to me, it's not it's not dispositive in any way that that nobody's found a file saying that she was an informant. Um, but look, where I come down on this is I don't want to get out over my skis and the book, um, is written in a, I hope as a kind of fluid narrative that anybody who has no background in the troubles can find accessible, but there's a hundred pages of end notes in which I show my work and I kind of tell you, you, well, you absolutely, you absolutely succeed in um, that and, 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 and pulling people through who do not know this story because I mean, the book has been a bestseller, which if you had told me two years the ago, if you had told me, I mean, that is yeah. complete madness, but you um, do such a good job of actually bringing people through that story without kind of bogging them down in this kind of tedious. I don't think the word Stormont is mentioned once. In the yeah. Book, well, maybe. look, that was, the, I mean, I think there's, the I think there's a tendency and I'm, I'm sure you found this too. Like the, the, and it was probably even harder, frankly, shooting, shooting, um, a, a doc in that the space constraints are, I mean, time is, is such an issue, but like it, it's not a place or a subject that lends itself to an economy of storytelling because yeah. there's this proliferating universe of like people and great anecdotes and it's all great. Um, but I think there's often this tendency to want to kind of overwhelm the narrative with all this stuff. So what I was trying to do in, in the book is show my work and on the question of like whether Gene McConville was a, was an informant, I, I don't, I don't have enough evidence to definitively say. Um, and so um, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to lay out all the evidence on one side, lay out all the evidence on the other, um, and I'm fine with that. But it's, it, it also is a distraction in some ways because the point when you get into that game of of like adjudicating whether she was yeah. or was not because these slivers of evidence, you tend to forget that regardless of whether she was or wasn't, it was a, it was a hideous, yeah. monstrous war crime. Right. And one of the people involved, Brendan Hughes, who, yeah. who you, you is, features prominently in your book, um, and I think Dolores Price both acknowledged that it was a war crime. They did, yeah. Well, I don't know that Brendan acknowledged it was a war crime, but Brendan was. Th- these were two people. And this is another aspect of what was fascinating to me was that these are two people, Brendan Hughes and Dolores Price, who did heinous, heinous, awful things in their youth at the height of the conflict, and subsequently, particularly after the Good Friday Agreement, which I'm sure we'll we'll talk mm-hmm. about. Um, looked back on some of those things with real trauma and regret. And I think that Dolores Price was interesting because she, you can see her fluctuate between a kind of human, I mean, part of what I, what I was so drawn to about the story, right, is it's the, it's like the ideology of a zealot. It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the sort of conflict between um, the inflexible absolutism of a certain kind of political ideology, and then are just our natural human impulses, which are to be more humane and to compromise. And you see that in somebody like Dolores Price. So one minute she'll say, she was a tout, she deserved what she got, you know, uh, uh, death is too good for her. And then, literally in the same breath, she'll say, but then I ask myself, you know, (laughs) what warrants death? Like, who are we to decide who gets to live and die, you know? I think that maybe that's why this, that people are attracted to this narrative. I mean, particularly because the horror of it in the way you describe it and the way it's been described in the flo- uh, before and the way the McConville children described it in that initial BBC interview, you can look this up. It's yeah. really chilling. Uh, they, they're these kids as this is very, very soon after it happens yeah. and they're interviewed by BBC, um, 
reporter and it's a television interview and they just look broken already yeah. and, and frozen and kind of shaking. Um, I think that that's obviously one thing. The other thing is when you talk about extremism and fanaticism, we talk about these days people that are so unalloyed in their horrible nastiness, whether it's like Charlottesville Nazis or Islamists or something. When you see a bunch of Irish people who are just kind of like, you don't, I mean, IRA was like, people were supporting, we were Republicans in Congress, Peter King, supporting the IRA, bringing people from the IRA uh, to the United States and and former, former, um, you know, heads of the army council, supposedly coming to the White House, et cetera. So I think it allows people to look at that moral dimension in a different way. It's unfortunate that it does. But, you know, rather than saying, oh, that guy was in Al Qaeda and he lived in Libya and then he joined this, that and the other. But when you when you went when you went through this stuff, Dolores Price becomes an interesting figure because prior to these B.C. tapes, people didn't know that she was involved in the murder of Jim McConville. Jim McConville's murder up until fairly recently was a mystery. Right. Nobody knew. Yeah. And then to find out that it was three people, one of whom was a woman and the other one was a man and the other one, you reveal something in your book. And if you haven't read the book and I don't believe in spoilers for history because it was in the newspaper, it's not really a spoiler, but you reveal that the other shooter was a woman too. I mean, you talk about the sort of moral dimension of this and how it weighed on people, right? Yeah. It's fairly obvious how it's going to affect the McConville kids who are, you know, rather screwed up by this, obviously. Yeah. Um, talk about a little bit about the players on the IRA side and how they dealt with this after the fact. I mean, clearly, Dolores Price was involved in a lot of stuff that, um, you know, was, was criminal and, and, yeah. and violent. But this one in particular seemed to have bothered. Did you believe that this was something that actually aided her a bit? Uh, I did. It's it's really hard because you're, you know, in this case, she's dead before I ever had heard of her. Yeah. And so I'm going on interviews with people who knew her, her letters, um, part of a memoir that she wrote, and then um, and then a handful of unpublished interviews that she'd given with other people when she was alive. And, um, and then published interviews that she'd done as well. So I have these different sources that I'm drawing on. But I think the hard thing is she's, you know, she was in therapy. She was drinking a lot. She was a pretty heavy drinker. Uh, she was a heavy drinker and was a you know, prescription drug too, issue yeah. and um, had PTSD, was in and out of psychiatric care, um, and I think was often in denial. So it's, it's hard to sort of put your finger on what's bothering her and what's not. She would claim at times that the gene thing was – I mean the interesting thing is there's another guy who – she was involved in a number of these disappearances. And there's a guy, Joe Linsky who was an IRA guy, who she helped ferry to his death. You talk about this in the book, the Joe Linsky case. Um, This is one that's fascinated me for a long time. Tell us about that case, because it's a really, really fascinating, crazy look into what it was like in the Troubles at that time. Because, you know, I don't know if the math is, I I think I'm right about this, that the number of Catholics that were killed by Catholics, and, 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 and the opposite is true on the Protestant side, you know, was not two to one, but there were more Catholics killed by other Very Catholics than, than killed by, by people on the opposing side. So what happened in the Joe Linsky case? So Linsky was a, he was in the provisional IRA with Dolores Price, uh, and they became friends. And he was an older guy. He was a little unusual. A lot of them were very young. And he was an older guy who had actually gone off um, to train as a monk. 
and um, ended up leaving and joining the IRA. And he, he was like a little bit of an oddball, but a, but a, but a uh, what's the smile? Yeah, no, just that's a good, I, I've heard that description before. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The, um, yeah. He, the two of them had this connection. And um, there's this crazy sequence of events that I get into in the book where um, you you get a shooting that happens. There's a guy who's a provisional who gets shot, and they're trying to figure out who might have done it. And at the time, there's this very hot conflict. Um, uh, this is in the early 70s between the provisional IRA and the official IRA. So they're not just fighting the RUC and loyalists and the British Army, but they're also these two wings of the IRA are fighting each other. Um, and the the supposition was that um, it was the official IRA that had shot this guy. And so Brendan Hughes kind of springs into action to go and find the officials who did this. And um, – Part one of the places that they got the idea that it was the officials is that they asked Joe Linsky, who was an intelligence uh, officer, and he says, "Yeah, it was you know, looks like it was the officials." So they go to this drinking, this kind of unlicensed drinking club where a bunch of the officials hang out, and they walk in. A bunch of armed provisionals walk in, uh, close the door, and um, hold everybody hostage. And I. One of the things I, that that is kind of interesting to think about is it turns out that this is a bunch of young guys with guns. They may have been drunk at the point where they barge into this bar and close the door. And there's a guy who's there with his, I think his wife and his mother, out just, you know, a civilian. And um, somebody like manhandles his mother or something and uh, he pushes back and he ends up getting shot in the leg. And normally what you would do is get that guy to an ambulance and to the hospital and he would survive. But the feeling was because there's cops and army outside, nobody could leave. So the provisional say, all right, nobody leaves. Um, and they all just sit there with the guy as he bleeds out and dies on the floor. And, in front of his mother. Yeah. yeah. And after this happened, um, it emerges that it wasn't the officials at all. That the, the guys that they went after thinking that they'd shot their, their friend um, – hadn't been the shooters. In fact, Joe Linsky, the intelligence officer, uh, had been having an affair with that guy's wife. And so he arranged to have his love rival, like his fellow provo, and his love rival shot and to blame it on the guys that they're fighting with, the officials. It's amazing that you use these sort of internecine struggles to get away with like cheating on somebody's wife. Yeah, this, this is, uh, <laughs> you know, I think. But I this mean, is the great thing about y your book is that, I mean, if you're interested in the kind of arc of the troubles, I mean, let's put from 68, 69 to, to the Good Friday Agreement, um, you get that. But these sort of micro stories in it that are totally fascinating and these individuals that are totally fascinating give this book a totally different feel. I mean, you, I I've, so. I, I, I've read a lot of books, Henry McDonald's book, which yeah. I, I really enjoyed. Um, you know, they're just about the sort of politics of it all. Yeah. But when you realize that some of these people are, uh, and this is what I realized when I was in Belfast uh, shooting that doc is that they were just like kids that were involved in totally. the, the ideological component 
was kind of almost non-existent. They couldn't even justify it so many years after. And I mean, I think this is the same is true that people that joined radical organizations in the 60s and other places, whether it was Bader Meinhof or the Weather Underground. But, you know, it was just this sense of camaraderie in a lot of ways. And no surprise that it it descended after the Good Friday Agreement into... You know, like drug gangs, basically. Yeah. Uh, because those the the structures still remained, but they didn't really have much to do. And it struck me that, you know, the INLA, which was a which was a you know the Marxist offshoot, those guys were serious about ideology. Yeah. <laughs> they actually yeah. they actually meant it. They were Marxists, and they they had the pictures of Che and the rest of it. And I know there's a lot of people in the provost that believe that stuff too. Well, but, you had a range, though. I mean, this is but this it, yeah, a, it's it's a range, isn't it? And and part of it was part of what I was really trying to get at in the book was the um, I just sort of thought if you if you can see these people as people and you can get intimate and sort of up close enough that you recognize, I mean, you know, what were you doing when you were 19? Right. Like I, I I look back at the, I mean, it's a different, it's a different time and a place and there's obviously extreme historical circumstances that these people are thrust into. Mm -hmm. Um, but they're also young and they're susceptible to romance and to, um, uh, you know, some of the glamour of it. and the idea I mean, in Belfast is a very particular place, too. I mean, it's a pretty grim place even now. I mean, it was more so back then. Well, it is, and but it's also, you know, back then it's a place where you had these people who, who were raised in a system, in, in which, in a, these Catholics who were raised in an environment in which there was deep systemic sure. oppression. I mean, the, the statistic in the book that I still, I still, um, still kind of uh, beggars belief for me is um, that in the three decades prior to the Troubles, the Catholic birth rate in Northern Ireland was roughly twice the Protestant birth rate, but the Catholic population remained static because everybody just left, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So you have these people raised in that milieu, and then in the case of somebody like Dolores Price, they're raised, they're like weaned on these myths of Republican martyrdom and the idea that for generations, you know, it's been our duty to go out and fight this fight. Um, to me, when you, when you bake all that in, you can take somebody who's not a psychopath to begin with, is, an, is a fundamentally kind of a normal person, but who's been thrust into a very abnormal situation. And, and you can start to understand how they could drive a mother of 10 to her death. Um, or do some of the, or you know, set a bomb in a public place, a car bomb, uh, in the middle of London. I mean, it's it's interesting because you know, there, in fairness, there's a lot of nineteen, eighteen, nineteen year olds who in the north who didn't do anything, yeah, right? I mean, yeah. They just lived their lives and actually hated. They joined the sort of more, more moderate parties like Absolutely. the SDLP. Um, but I think it depends on a lot of factors. I mean, I was with a guy who uh, spent some time in the Mays prison for, mm. for killing a coworker. Um, turned out that coworker was not who he thought the coworker was. I mean, you're shooting a Catholic guy that was, was reputed to be a, a provisional and, and he wasn't. And he told me, and it's in the actual film, he told me um, that there was a time when he was 18 years old that if you had asked him to get on a bus and kill everybody on it, provided that he knew that they were all Catholics, he absolutely would have done yeah. it. And he's a pretty normal guy now. That said, what I found totally fascinating about it is how much it had seeped into their system and it was impossible to get rid of. When the cameras went off, a couple of the guys would they'd be talking about peace and how they go to you know South Africa and do things there. They go to, they go to the Palestinian territories. Yeah, and, they try. Yeah. and then um, immediately... He's like, the, the, the PS and I would drive by. And one guy, I fucking steer forces. And it's like, steer forces? Like, off on these people. Yeah, the yeah. second, and then on camera, calm, 
piece, but he just couldn't yeah. exercise it, couldn't get it out of his system. And it, it, it's interesting to watch and see how that milieu, that environment, right. that th- th- how crazy it made people. When you see everywhere you go, there's paintings in particular areas in yeah. Falls Road and the Shankle and the even rest of it. Even now, yeah. Even now. Right. But it was amazing. Confederate flags. They, they painted over those, by the way. Confederate flags, because there was some Protestant you know, general. But my favorite thing was going to, to, to the Shankle Road, going to the Protestant section, and seeing uh, paintings of Israeli flags. Yeah. Why? Because Sinn Féin, IRA, were pro-Palestinian. So they were just on the other side. I'm like, God, this is really a completely daft place. Totally. Yeah. But I mean, there are moments where, uh, to that point in particular, where I feel as though the, particularly these days, um, it's, I mean, the interesting thing for me is there's a, there's a, I guess it's kind of a continuum, but like the other end of the continuum is just, it's, it's, it's football hooliganism, right? It's just tribalism of any sort. So on some level, it's like, oh, you have that flag? Well, I have this flag. And yeah, fuck you. Exactly. You know, and that's, and that, it, it kind of takes on a, a logic of its own, which is the only way I can understand that's right. going, I mean, I know you've done this, but, but like, you know, when you go out to the bonfires um, oh and God, the marches yeah. and it, it's this scary, um, incredibly uh, kind of febrile um, atmosphere in which you feel the potential for violence in the air. And there's all these young drunk people. And my experience looking around at these like 18, 19 year olds and thinking to myself, these are kids who grew up with the internet. Like who, who on earth could, could want this, could want this life. And I realized that like, they don't actually know the history. They're not no. plugging into some some contemporary yeah. sense of political. They cannot. They're not going to be able to tell you much about the, the plans for a hard or a soft Brexit. Um, yeah. They they what? It's just pure uh, sectarian tribalism. Tribalism. Yeah. I, no, it, it's it's really interesting because if you look at Charlottesville um, and the show that I work for, we did a did a piece on Charlottesville that got a lot of attention. I and, remember it, yeah. and, and shot all this great stuff. Um, horrible stuff, but, but beautifully shot of these lunkheads yeah. saying, you know, Jews will not replace us. You will not replace us. Jews will not replace yeah. us. So not surprising. They come from that kind of Nazi orbit, alt-right thing, right. you know, Nazi light, alt-right. Um, but it's funny because they still try in some way. They'll not replace us, right? There's something, there's a, there's a sort of subterranean thing there. When I go to the bonfires, the word kill is used. K-A-T. Yeah. Kill right. all tags. Yeah, yeah, tags yeah. being Catholics. Right. Bonfires in which people are there with their children who yeah. are anywhere from, you know, infants totally. to 18 years old, kids six years. I mean, I'm yeah. in the film that I did. I'm talking to six, seven yeah. year old, yeah. ten, you know, the kid who says, fuck a pope. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah. a pope. What are you talking right. about? There's only one. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, and, and, and they, you know, they're burning the effigies. These effigies. And, yeah, I yeah. mean, it, it, we don't even, like, it, it, that would be crazy if you saw that in, in, in Charlottesville. What we saw was bad enough. There was a murder right. there. It was the most hideous thing in the world. But then you see it, and it's just kind of well. To shrug. say nothing of the idea, I mean, the murals, right? The the idea that you um, you have these murals all over uh, big buildings in Belfast and Derry, and um, and I mean, to me, the the notion that you that a kid grows up and every day on the way to school they pass this massive like four story mural of like guys in fatigues with ski masks and. Yeah. Kalashnikovs. Yeah. Um, what does that do to the mindset of it? And and it's not it's crazy. You know, and it's yeah. not like watching watching violence on TV. You, this is depicting 
actual figures who— In your neighborhood. Yeah, in your neighborhood in the immediate past. Um, I mean, it's not a coincidence that, that, you know, you buy— collect propaganda posters and they're all from totalitarian regimes. I mean, they paper the wall with men with lantern jaws and either, you know, hammers in their hands or guns in their hands. I mean, Northern Ireland was that way and still is. I mean, those murals are still there and, you know, they might be a little muted these days. But they're not. But they're not, actually. (laughs) There's that one on the shankle that you're talking about, the ski mask, black black pants and uh, holding the holding the Kalashnikovs. But, you know, I mean, if you look back at this time, you have these people, and really important in your book uh, is Jerry Adams. Yeah. And Jerry Adams, who is uh, up until recently, um, now in kind of retirement. Uh, <laughs> writing cookbooks. Writing, writing cookbooks, yeah, that's right. Um, he was the head of, of Sinn Féin, the most notable and probably famous uh, Republican. He denies ever being a Republican. Tell me a little bit about... Well, ever being a member of the IRA. I, I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 no, he, yeah. he definitely doesn't yeah. uh, deny being a Republican. Tell me about how he figures into your book. So Adams, um, it's funny. I mean, I, I imagine uh, probably for you growing up where and when you did, not dissimilar to me. I mean, for me growing up, Jerry Adams was a f- familiar figure. He was a, a kind of kind of a hero to Irish America. Yeah. Um, it was considered a uh, you know a great mark of progress when Bill Clinton gave him a visa to come to the United States, um, and he then was one of the architects of the peace process. And um, for me, growing up in, in Boston and certainly even living in New York, when Jerry Adams comes to town, uh, it's it's a visiting dignitary. Um, I, I, you know, a lot of people I've known for a long time talk about him as somebody who, who was like robbed of the Nobel Prize. Um, and there's this flip side to this, which is that he was in the IRA. He's always denied that, but it's kind of a joke. I mean, the only person who would, who would actually say with a straight face that Jerry Adams wasn't in the IRA is Jerry Adams. Um, and in rather prominent positions, too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, this is, this is to go back to what I was saying earlier, the, about the idea that disappearing people wasn't, it wasn't like a kind of excess of wartime, a, a random spontaneous atrocity. It was a policy. The IRA, particularly in those days, was very regimented. They really kind of modeled themselves on the British Army. Their whole idea was we are a legitimate army, and so we have a chain of command, and we have everybody in these different they're, – they're actually almost obnoxiously kind of officious about yeah, these types yeah. of things. Um, and so this becomes really significant when you know about the leadership roles that Jerry Adams had in Belfast in this period of time when people are making this – fairly momentous decision to not just kill but disappear people. Um, and the low-level – Dolores Price is not deciding to do that herself, right? There's no way she would do that without an order coming down. So um, Adams is this, this to me, kind of endlessly intriguing guy in that he, um, he – like Dolores Price, he comes from a Republican family. He joins the IRA early on. He's very smart. He's very analytical. Uh, and he's a chess player. I mean, he, he – has a strategic acumen that a lot of the people he's surrounded by don't. And people recognize that from early on. And at a certain point, um, he starts to deny that he was ever in the IRA. He kind of emerges as this political face of the movement. Says, I'm Sinn Féin, the political wing, but I was never in the IRA. I didn't do any of that stuff. And that 
which is just just absurd. just transpa- transparent nonsense. I mean, the yeah, story yeah, that everybody yeah. I didn't I didn't put this in the book, but the story that everybody tells, which I think might be apocryphal, but everybody in Belfast, I'm sure they told you, will tell a story about this famous little clip from the BBC. The only problem is I looked for the clip and I couldn't find it. I don't I think it may not exist, but it's um, Adams walking through West Belfast. He's getting trailed by children, and this would always happen. It looks like the the footage of like Muhammad Al Ali running through uh, Zaire, you yeah. know. Um, but uh, so he's like walking along. Jerry he's, Adams, hey, boom by yeah, exactly. He's got these kids. <laughs> kind of chasing after him and there's a bbc reporter and the, the famous story is that the the bbc reporter asks him um you know if he's in the ira or has ever been in the ira and adams kind of goes through his usual thing about how no i'm not you know i'm not now never have been in the ira and one of the kids running after him goes why not you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's like the, uh, so yeah it was always a joke right yeah, that yeah. he would say this but what it did was it created when you get the the birth of the peace process it created a space in which he could negotiate with people like George Mitchell um, in which, you know, frankly, Bill Clinton could could let him come to the United States and take that political risk to say we are going to negotiate with Sinn Féin and try and end this conflict. And the fact that there was a kind of a, like fig leaf of plausible deniability where people could say, oh, well, I'm not negotiating with terrorists. I'm negotiating with Jerry. And you see Jerry's not in the IRA, actually. He just talks to them all the time and they seem to listen to him. Um, the the trick, and this really kind of gets to the the emotional heart of the book, um, is that in ninety eight in ninety eight you get the Good Friday Agreement, and Adams is intimately involved in that and has been celebrated, I think, justly celebrated for his role in steering the IRA out of this conflict. But the conflict ends, and the deal is not that the Brits leave. The deal is that you get a negotiated settlement. You'll have a power-sharing arrangement. And if a day comes when um, they put it to a vote and a majority of people want to reunify with Ireland, then that'll happen. And so those are the terms of this landmark peace deal. And I think kind of somewhat amazingly, since 1998 in the United States, the kind of mainstream narrative is that Everything's coming up roses. This was a great triumph. You know, we should all celebrate. And and again, I do think we should celebrate it. But what you didn't hear about until fairly recently was people like Dolores Price, who in middle age watches this peace deal happen. And she starts looking back and she's thinking about the things that she did in the early 70s, putting bombs in public places, driving people to their execution, going on hunger strike and almost dying. And she, and it wasn't just her, there were many others who felt this way. They say, wait a second, you know, I did all that stuff with the implicit understanding that the end that we were all striving towards was to get the Brits out of Ireland once and for all. So the reason we, we transgressed those kinds of moral boundaries was that we thought we would eventually achieve what generations of our families and our country people had not been able to and get the Brits out. And you've, you've just changed the rules here. You've said – well, we're going to end with a political settlement. And then the trick with Jerry's persona is that he then, as if to add insult to injury, as Dolores Price is looking back at the things she did and wondering, what am I supposed to make of the morality of the stuff that I did uh, in service of this aim, which was not the aim that I had thought we would be, we would be uh, striving to achieve – Adam says, oh, well, I, I personally don't have any of that trauma because, you see, I was never in the IRA. And for her, this is the guy who gave her the orders. This is her own commanding officer essentially disowning her. So this is the interesting thing, too, about this conflict, even if you're not kind of steeped in modern Irish history, 
is that, you know, it is that tension between somebody, you know, he could have gotten the Nobel Prize. He may, maybe he was robbed. And he absolutely was, you know, the most, I mean, Ian Paisley did a lot uh, to who's complete nutcase too, yeah. and Martin McGinnis and these yeah. people. But, you know, this is also a man who, according to Dolores Price and Brendan Hughes, gave the order for a widowed mother of 10 to be pulled out of her house in the right. middle of the night and shot in the head right. and buried only to be found by somebody jogging on a beach who tripped on her bone. Decades later. Decades later. I mean, w- what is that? I know that you often hear that, well, Mandela... There's, there's something different about this, though, isn't there? I mean, how do you... Well, it's not just that, but the... But, I mean, the other tricky thing with Adams, and again, I think this gets to the smallness of Northern Ireland, is that, um, you know, the, for, uh, the, on the first of my seven trips over there, uh, with a number of phone calls and meetings, I was able to ascertain that when Jean McConville's now-grown children were looking for her body, they just wanted to recover the body to bury it themselves. Adams goes and meets with them and says, I'm going to help you try and get to the bottom of what happened to your mother. And, and that's the man who ordered it. To and happen. it's the man who ordered it to happen. And, and, but that plays out many, many, many times in many. So it's somebody once said of Adams that like it started as a, as a small lie, you yeah. know, that the problem is that once you, once you commit to the lie, he ends up in this situation in which he's having to tell all these kind of auxiliary lies, often to the faces of people um, who, at least some of whose misfortune he is the author of. I mean, the title of the book, obviously, Say Nothing, right? Michael McConville knew who took his mother. Yeah. So it's a murder mystery in which one of the victims knows the perpetrator, knows who they are. They were her neighbors. They were their neighbors. Yeah. He never said anything, did he? No, I mean, this is... Um... Because, by the way, we're talking about Dolores Price and the others who actually pulled the trigger, but there was a team of people who did this. Who took her out. And we don't know the names of those people, but yeah. he does? Is that is that right? Yeah. I, I mean, people in Belfast do know the names of them, and I know the names of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ended up not... Um, you know, it was an area that I didn't focus too much on in the book because... Chiefly because these people were pawns, basically. These were mostly young people who lived in that area who I don't think necessarily knew when they took her out of the apartment that they were taking her to be killed and disappeared. Uh, in terms of the did, kind of— Did you talk to any of them? No. They wouldn't talk. You tried? Uh, in one case, yeah. Um, and they—no. they, they no. It was a rather negative response out of Yeah, you. they're not—I mean, these people are not—they're uh, um, there's no, I mean, I, I will say a number of them have been like arrested and questioned by the authorities. The authorities didn't, uh, didn't ultimately charge anyone. Yeah. Um, but the story of what happened to Jean McConville sort of starts in that apartment and ends at an unmarked grave. And in terms of the kind of, um, the like continuum of moral responsibility, what I'm most interested in is the people who pulled the trigger and knew that you're killing and disappearing this woman. Uh, and the people who gave the order, the people who, pulled her out of the apartment and took her to a safe house uh, to be questioned um, uh, while obviously they share a huge amount of responsibility. And it's, it's, um, but, but it is interesting too, because it's not, these people are not, they're absolute fanatics, but in some ways they still don't want that moral responsibility. I mean, you recount that there was, I don't know if this is actually true or not, that 
all three of them were to fire. Um, yeah. They killed Gene McConville, yeah, so yeah. they wouldn't take, they wouldn't know if they were the one who actually delivered the death blow. I mean, this is something you know in a firing squad where somebody gets a, a blank, yeah. uh, or they all get blanks and one gets a real bullet. Right. I mean, so obviously they knew at the time that yeah. this was a transgressive, uh, um, terrible thing to be doing. But but again, you got to remember. I mean, these are people who, in the case yeah. of Dolores Price and Brendan Hughes, starved themselves like to the brink of death um, in a situation in which literally you had like people at the prison coming in and bringing a tray of breakfast in the morning and putting it down in front of them. Um, so I, I think that the, um, you know, Dolores Price once, once compared herself to an endurance athlete, uh, which is, which is both, which yeah. is both like a little ridiculous and deeply telling. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that the, their sense of, um, kind of subli- sublimating your every human instinct to the cause and to the orders that you're given, um, was just ferocious during those years. Did, did you get a sense that they were detached from the cause at some point and it became just a kind of death cult in the sense that, you know, I mean, they're young people, they're starving themselves to death. I mean, I don't think they're talking, thinking about Patrick Pierce every moment when they're, you know, sitting, you know, wasting away in a prison cell. You know, it strikes me at some point it's a Jonestown. Yeah. These people are just fanatics and you can't even say, well, Republicans are fanatics and unionists are fanatics or whatever. Everyone is just caught up in this madness, but, it seems so stripped of ideology at, at certain at certain points because, as you mentioned, there's a lot of people that didn't really get the actual background of this. So at that point, you wonder what is actually facilitating this and, and creating this. In well, I think they got it more then. I mean, I think yeah. if you if you grew up in that era, um, the the oppression um, that you felt as a Catholic in Northern Ireland was vivid, and everybody could you know could tell a story. I mean. Brendan Hughes as a little boy w- w- growing up in a Protestant area, you know, walks by this, there'd be this old woman sitting in front of her house and she would spit at him when he walked by and ask him if he'd blessed himself in the Pope's piss that morning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you have that kind of, uh, experience as a child, um, it's, it personalizes the ideological issues. I think you're right in terms of the, um, the death cult quality, uh, in the sense that, um, particularly for Dolores Price, she's reared on stories of martyrs. Like there was this sense of um, the most beautiful thing you could do, like aesthetically beautiful, was give everything for the cause. She's raised, um, Dolores is raised in a house where she had this aunt, Bridie, her mother's sister. And Bridie in the 30s had been involved in the struggle and as a young woman, still I think in her teens, early 20s, she um, was moving a cache of explosives and it detonated. And it blows off both of her hands, it scars her face, blinds her permanently. And she lives. And she would stay with Dolores' family. So there's this woman, you know, uh, upstairs who can't see and has no hands. And needs to be taken care of in every conceivable way. And Dolores, from the age of eight or nine, had this job of lighting her cigarettes and putting them in her mouth so she could take a puff. And when you hear Dolores talk about this, there's this kind of crazy sense in which what she says is she's like, oh, we didn't feel pity for her. 
we envied the idea that she'd given it all mm-hmm. and she had no regrets. And um, I just think there's no way if you grow up in that kind of environment, in an environment where, you know, Che Guevara is a great hero for them. Well, but, I don't see know. much difference between between the martyrdom posters you see in Gaza and the ones you see Absolutely. on the Falls Road yeah. of people who died in hunger strikes. Yeah. I mean, that is a goal in which one, you know, they gave it all for the cause. And one of the things I find, find, find interesting is that there's a certain point at which you divorce violence from kind of reality and people don't even think about it. If I did half the things that these people did, I would never work again, much less have a, have a, you know, laudatory film made about Mm. me like Bobby Sands. I mean, and everyone forgets that Bobby Sands was trying to blow up a furniture store when he was arrested and had a long history in a violent organization. I mean, that sort of, that, that patina of politics over it. And maybe for some people it's more than a patina. They just kind of engrossed in it. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a bizarre thing that in Northern Ireland, there was no peace movement in the sense, I mean, you look at 68, 69, the Black Panthers ultimately lost out to the Martin Luther King factions right, right. and the, the, you know, the SNCs and the people like yeah. that. And because the violence was just not, it was not appealing to most people. Northern Ireland never had that. Well, I mean, there was a peace movement um, and it got, and part of, I mean, part of the way the whole thing yeah, you're, I shouldn't say never had that. Yeah, but it, never started, t- it, it didn't win out. It didn't. And, well, and, and part, I mean, this, one of the stories I tell early in the book is that Dolores Price initially, it kind of comically in, in the Price family, the way you were a teenage rebel would be to say, you know, what if we gave peace a chance? <laughs> and so she, you know, she goes on this march to Derry and gets, and gets beaten up by a loyalist mob. Um, mm. I think that there were a bunch of factors there um you know a lot of it the escalation of the of the british government i mean internment and various other um uh ways in which they um escalated in insane ways i mean it's fascinating to look at 68 69 70 71 and think about uh a universe in which it all could have been averted right in which it could have gone a different way i mean i I, you might mention in the book but uh, people are often very surprised to find that the British army showed up in defense of the Catholic population yeah. and, and was welcomed and was welcomed by the Catholic yeah. population. You can see yeah. footage of them getting tea from, yeah. from women on the falls road and, right. and how, how poorly that went after that. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. Right. Well, because I mean, and this is, but, but it all sort of turns on a dime and suddenly they become this occupying force. And I think a lot of that is down to, um, to mistakes that they made in terms of how they, um, how they approached it. But the, the, I mean, the, the one thing I was going to say to the death cult point and the, and the martyrdom and the, um, uh, and martyrs in other contexts is that, and Bobby Sands in particular, is that there was a sense in which, I mean, on the one hand, you're right. It's just a patina of politics. On, and, and maybe there were people who just emotionally have a, at a certain point you become, you know, it's like Yukio Mishima or something. You're sort of, you, you have like a, a sort of aesthetic cult of your own death. Um, But it was also the case that you could point at different junctures in Irish history to um, the, you know, to, to Patrick Paris, to the, the, uh, the Easter rising, to um, Terrence McSwiney, to, uh, to Bobby Sands, to these instances in which somebody does martyr themselves mm-hmm. and it actually ends up making a huge political difference. That, That's true. That the, as, as opposed to, you know, I hate to say it, but, you know, in the Palestinian context, I mean, uh, you, can, you, can, uh, you can expunge your own life and I don't know how much mileage you're going to get um, politically. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it, it is true, and it has has made um, a considerable difference. I mean, we see uh, Billy McKee, yeah. who died the other day. At, I was just going to look at 97. 97. Yeah. And, you know, I think of him, and I, I think of, um, you know, I've been interviewing you in a kind of neutral way, but I have to say, what a wasted life. I mean, the thing about the, uh, the thing that I understand with Dolores Price, and this is also calls into question some of the things that she says about Jerry Adams, yeah. is that they're, they're dead enders. I mean, they're, that was a surrender. And if you walk around and around, I mean, how many times have you seen the IRA no surrender? Yeah. Well, that's exactly what you got. Thank God that you did because the yeah. peace process was the right thing to do right. and it stopped that carnage, but it was surrender. They didn't get what they wanted. Right. And, you know, Billy McKee wasted his life as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, he was. Wait, a, he wasted it in the sense that he didn't, that they didn't get what they. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. not even, not even, not even an inch, really. I mean, you got, yeah. you have power sharing and the rest of it. Yeah. But at this, but what they demanded, they did not get. Right. And. Well, know, the funny thing is there's a move that people in that, that, um, I mean, particularly people, uh, Sinn Féin type people will make in which they, a sort of rhetorical move in which they say, oh, well, look how much, look, look you know, conditions got so much better, right? That there, that there were all these other things short of a united Ireland. Yeah. Um, but of course, the counterfactual there for me would be, wouldn't that have all happened anyway? I, look, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, people don't have a stomach for violence forever. Yeah. And there's a point where they're just going to want to, we got to do something right. about this and it would have been by different means. But, you know, we see a shooting of a journalist um, in Derry yeah. um, two months ago yeah. by a dissident faction. Right. Um, that dissident faction, um, which is an unpronounceable Irish word, yeah. um, watch an interview with these people. This was, I saw one for about six months prior to the shooting. And it's fine. It's a new generation. The kid, the guy looks like a, like a skateboarder. He's got yeah. like vans on yeah. and like skinny jeans and he just looks like a hipster and he's justifying all this stuff. And you know, that doesn't really exist in any great way. Like it did in 1972, the most violent year of the troubles, but we still have quote unquote peace walls. And these are walls that separate communities right. in, you know, in the United Kingdom. Right. So they and, don't and more kill of, each other. more of them today than there were at the end of the troubles. A- absolutely yeah. right. So what is the sense that you get when you're there now of, is it a tenuous piece? Is it, I mean, you still see these marches. You still see people, you know, periodically getting shot. Yeah. Uh, you, petrol bombs here and there. Yeah. I mean, what is it? What, what do you think of, uh, of Belfast, Northern Ireland now? Uh, it's so hard. I mean, I, I think it's... Um it is a tenuous piece in some respects. I mean, it's, it's a, it's an incredibly divided place. It's an incredibly cold piece. Um, the peace walls are a great example. You know, the, there's been this big initiative to try and take them down. And then every time the time they try and take one of the walls down, the community immediately adjacent on both sides says, no, please, please, we feel safer with them up. So yeah. the people don't want them to be taken down. And they have big nets on top of them. Yeah. So it's crazy. I mean, it's funny. Right it's like almost comical. These are the stories that you, that, you know, never, never make it into a book, but like, you know, um, four years of reporting in Belfast and uh, getting around using Google Maps, and Google Maps doesn't show the um, it doesn't show the peace walls often. And so I'd be in these situations where I'm like running from one appointment to another, and you're you're looking on Google Maps to try and get where you think you're going to go on a ten minute walk, and then suddenly you you confront this massive wall that's been like dropped down, and you need to figure out you know how do I get around this thing. 
Um, I mean, is there anything more perfect than that? I guess, yeah, as a as a as a, <laughs> yeah, as a metaphor, um, running literally running, running directly into a wall. Into a wall. Yeah, and there's, and there's no no way around it. Community to community. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a mess, and you know, ninety two or ninety three percent of children in Northern Ireland go to schools that are segregated by religion. Um, there's a thing. It's a story. I, this isn't in the book, but I in the original New Yorker piece, I told this story, which to this day is hard for me to wrap my mind around. Um, Particularly, it must be said as like a 21st century kind of bourgeois uh, cosmopolitan American um, who brings his own baggage to the situation. Sure. But I remember driving along with Michael McConville on one of these roads where um, one side of the – he was pointing out to me that one side of the road, our, to our right, everything is like entirely Protestant. To our left, everything is entirely Catholic. And we're just driving down this road. And on the left and the Catholic side, there's this little strip of businesses – um, like a, a pub and a, or a you know and a little curry joint, and then there was a um, a subway sandwich franchise. And I said to Michael, "Okay, so if I'm a Protestant who lives on the right hand side of the road and I want a sandwich, mm-hmm. would I walk across the street like thirty yards to go to the subway?" And he was like, "Not a chance, no way." This and to, 2017, 18, 15. This is this recent. is recently. This yeah. is 2014, 2015. But the, but of course, to me, I'm just thinking. And again, maybe this is as an American who just prizes convenience above all else. But I'm just like, how could you be so dysfunctional? How could you live a life that was so deliberately circumscribed um, for the sake of what? And, 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 you know, fundamentally, this community is not that different from you, right? Um, well, it requires that you actually know the people because it's not racial. Uh, I mean, it, which, you know, surprises right, America. Right, we think right. everything has to be racial. Is that, you know, you, there's no physical differences. I mean, it reminds me of Philip Gravich's book. I mean, your old yeah, yeah, yeah. colleague uh, about Rwanda. Rwanda right. We regret to inform you that tomorrow you'll yeah. be killed your families. And there's a amazing bit in which, and I think it's a sort of legacy, a deliberate legacy of colonialism, of saying, well, you know, the Hutus, they have their eyes are a little further apart. Yeah. You know, the, oh the Tutsis God. have yeah, these yeah, noses. Yeah. They're like, and they're just, they're, they're non-existent yeah. the, physical the differences. narcissism of minor differences. Exactly. Yeah. The, the yeah. Genocidal narcissism yeah. of minor differences. But like, you cannot tell these things in a community right. like that. So it requires that you know people by name, by their background, where they're coming from, right. if they are or are not an enemy. My cameraman was an incredible thing. We're in Ardoin. We had a, a associate producer, which is a very, very low level position. Mm-hmm. You know, you get the coffees and you make mm-hmm. sure everything gets the trains run on time. And we were at the march in Ardoin. I mean, very, very hyper Republican yeah, yeah, yeah. area of, of uh, West Belfast. And um, there was a pub there, and our guy said, "No, no, Allison, this this uh, AP is British. The whole crew is British. I'll be fine in the pub." <laughs> he goes and talks to everybody. We go out and there's just, you know, fires and yeah, like, you know, yeah. shooting water cannons. Our cameraman gets knocked off the wall in water cannon. We go back in there and it was, it was like a cartoon in which the mouse is in the corner, you know, in the, as the, as the walls meet and the cats are all staring at her and they wouldn't let her order a drink. She went up to the bar and she's like, Oh, okay, I'm fine. Goes up to the bar and says, give me a glass of whatever, a pint of yeah. whatever. And they just looked at her. And wouldn't respond to her. Yeah. And so she's in there terrified as we're out in this war zone. And I'm like, what year is this? It's so weird. I it's, know. You know, and, and also that as they point out, the, the British group point out, the bunting, you know, the, uh, right, on the Shankill Road, yeah. the, the, the pro, pro-British, pro pro-unionist, um, it's everywhere. And, and as they said, these are people are far more British than I am in the sense that yeah. I, we, you don't see any of this stuff where I live. If you see that stuff, it means they're a member of the BNP. But that, but that goes to, and I don't, you know, this is some, not something I very deliberately, I was telling a kind of specific story primarily about Republicans in this book. I don't get into loyalism and unionism all that much, yeah. but I mean, the really intriguing thing there is, 
um, I mean, this is the thing. So with Brexit, right, uh, the monumental, catastrophic stupidity of Brexit, the idea that British voters um, would, would uh, you know, enact a measure that's essentially going to reinscribe this line that mm-hmm. this war was fought over. Um, but also, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to say, mm-hmm. okay, so Northern Ireland has had the luxury of being both part of the EU and part of the UK. And the Brexiteers now are going to force them to choose. They're going to say, okay, we can't have both anymore. You got to choose, which to one way of thinking might ultimately hasten the reunification of Ireland. But the, so, so my, my initial take on that was these, these idiot, you know, shooting themselves in the foot Brexiteers, um, are going to end up losing Northern Ireland because of their short-sightedness. And a number of people said to me— And a coalition government, by the way, that's been held together by the DUP. But, exactly. Yeah. But they but said to me, uh, oh, the things they don't actually care, right? That, that, I mean, this is—and I think this is the, the for unionists going back decades. The great fear, and I think part of the reason that they're so aggressively British, is a fear that actually the motherland across the water, they could let you go. You know, I mean, it does in in some way feel like you know Irish people in Boston versus Irish people in totally. Ireland. Totally. I mean, the, the 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 Britishness of people in the United Kingdom um, is it's so different, yeah. and and British people have no nothing in common with them in so yeah. many ways. But you know, the Orange Order, all this stuff. I mean, right. that stuff's not going to go away. It's not. But you know, I just wanted to. We'll we'll wrap up here because I know I've kept you for a long time. I could keep on talking about yeah. this for. Hours, but unfortunately, we have many listeners who um, probably hate me enough already for talking about this issue. <laughs> if you've made it this far, send me an email, and I'll like give you a, like a gift certificate to Shake Shack or something. Um, the book is "Say Nothing." By the way, quickly, which version of "Say Nothing" did that come from? Because that's something that's uttered a lot in Northern Ireland. Yeah, so it's this. Well, it's a Seamus Heaney poem. Uh, whatever you say, say nothing. And yes. then that. But then it's never been entirely clear to me. Um, and there's no kind of nexus equivalent where you could easily figure this out. But how it, it, it is said that that's an old saying. That it was a saying long before Heaney, and it's very much. Um, uh, that there's certainly a cultural tradition of yeah. that, right? Yeah, I, it's a it's a fantastic book, and if if you're interested in this sort of thing, um, you probably already have it. If you're not interested in this sort of thing, buy it, and I assure you, you will be interested in this sort of if thing. If you've gotten this far, if you've gotten this far, I mean, I'll I'll, I'll do a little uh, tease at the front, you know, I'll do a little cold open with this. I mean, they probably these are people that probably have like you know have read about Freddie Scappatici or something yeah, exactly. if they get this far. Exactly. But uh, and and one final question: What are you working on next? What what can we expect? I'm doing a. I wrote a piece about uh, 18 months ago for the New Yorker about the Sackler family yes. and Purdue Pharma, and I'm expanding that into a book. Really? Yeah. Oh dear! So I got my work cut out. Oh for God! Yeah. Guilty? No, I'm sorry. I, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I you know, I, I I don't know anything. So I have to read the piece. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much uh, for joining, and look forward to it's the next pleasure. book. And uh, go buy the book, and uh, we'll be back. I think next week with the whole uh, gang. So bye. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse, the fifth column. 